Hello, welcome to the Equippers International Podcast. This is our short version where we're going through the book of Hebrews and we're in chapter 10. First of all, in this episode, I want to apologize for my voice. I've been a bit under the weather, but I'm getting better. And so I want to get back into making the episodes. So let's start in verse 15. And I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture today. I'm going to read through to verse 25 and we'll put it in context. I don't know how much we'll get done today, but I just want to read it all as one unit. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, these verses are full of a lot of great stuff, so let's dive in. Now, I've mentioned before that chapter 10 is really the central part of the book. It's where the writer really brings together everything that he said up to this point. He's driving home this truth that Jesus is the final and great sacrifice that has taken away sin, that has removed an awareness and consciousness of sin in the worshiper and has brought us to a place where we can stand in great confidence in our relationship with the Father. And in verse 15, he says that the Holy Spirit is testifying to us. And he says, after saying, and he requotes Jeremiah 31, the lengthier passage that he quotes in chapter 8. He quotes it and he kind of narrows it down to two central truths. In verse 16, he says the covenant that he's going to make with them is that he will put his laws upon their heart and on their mind he will write them so first there's something god is going to do with his laws and we're going to look at that this morning and then secondly he says their sins and their lawless deeds i will remember no more now this is where i've already talked about the fact that god is not sin conscience god is not thinking about our sin all the time and that's because he's dealt with our sin and he doesn't remember them anymore. Now, I don't believe God has amnesia, but I believe that God chooses to see the blood of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice that removed sin once and for all, and so God chooses not to dwell on it anymore. And then he says in verse 18, "For where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin." Now, we're going to come back to that verse in tomorrow's episode because it's going to really tie in to verse 26 nicely as we get into the next passage. But let me just say, remember the context of this book. At the time this book was written, the Jews were still offering sacrifices for sin in the temple. 
They had not stopped the sacrificial system. Even though Jesus has died and the church is alive and well and Christianity is moving on, they are still offering sacrifices. So the writer is trying to tell them there's no longer any offering for sin that needs to be made. You can stop making that sacrifice. In fact, in verse 26, in the following passage, he's going to get into the ramifications of what it looks like if you choose to continue to offer sacrifice for sin. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But today, in verses 16 and 17, as I said before, he requotes the prophetic promise through Jeremiah that God is going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, that new covenant has to do with God putting his laws upon their heart. Now, something very interesting I want to bring to your attention in this verse, and it is something I think has some significance. And I don't want to strain a gnat, so to speak, in interpreting this verse, but there is a very interesting aspect to this verse that might go unnoticed. He says in this verse that he will put his laws upon their heart. In every instance in the Bible where the scriptural writers refer to the law as it pertains to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, everything that the Jewish people would have seen as the covenant law that God gave to them, it always appears in the singular. It never appears in scripture as laws. It only appears as the law. Except in these verses in Hebrews, in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, when the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah, the Holy Spirit causes him to reinterpret, if you will, which, by the way, the writers of the New Testament have the liberty to do that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They actually interpret the Old Testament in the proper way that we should understand it. He says that he will put my laws upon their heart. Now, there's a lot of people that believe that God has simply taken the Old Testament law with its 640 some odd commandments, and he has now internalized that law within our hearts as part of the new covenant. Now, I disagree with that. The reason I disagree with that is for a couple of reasons. First of all, we know that according to scripture, the law is unable to bring anybody to righteousness. And as Paul tells us, it was given so that sin might increase. So the whole reason that God gave the external law was so that the children of Israel and likewise all of humanity would be able to see that according to God's righteous standard, they all fall short. They need something better. They need a savior. They need to see their sin so they'll turn to God and receive his provision for their sin through Christ Jesus. Now that's a very shortened version of a very deep theological truth, but something nonetheless we need to understand that the law is not something that God is now going to write into our hearts. If man could not even come close to attempting to keep the law from an external standpoint, how much more would he be unable to keep it if it's written on the inside? It doesn't change the nature 
nature of the law at all, no matter where it's written. So it doesn't make any real common sense that God's going to take all this law and he's going to write it within our hearts. And so the writers of the scripture tell us that the law is a heavy burden. Peter talked about it at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. He told the brothers there when they were discussing the role of the law in relationship to the Gentiles that were now coming to faith and receiving the Holy Spirit in the same way the Jews did. He says, our fathers could not bear this heavy burden. So it doesn't make much common sense to think that God would put a heavy burden within our hearts. So what is he talking about? Well, I believe there's a reason why he's talking about laws in the plural. Now, as we read the New Testament, we do find that there are some new laws that crop up. Jesus himself said, this is a new commandment that I give to you, that you would love one another. So there's one of the first and most important laws that come into play for the new believer. Another law that comes into play in the New Testament is what's called the law of faith. Paul talks about it in Romans 3, verse 27, when he says, Then where is boasting? Is it excluded? And by what kind of law? Of works? But no, by the law of faith. So there is a law operative in the life of the believer, and it is the law of faith by which we interact and relate to God based on faith and not by works. There's yet another law in Romans 8 where Paul says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has overcome the law of sin and death. You So you see there's these laws, there's these principles that are at work to produce life, to produce a right standing and a right way of relating to God. And I personally believe this is what God has written on our hearts. He's written into our hearts the proper ways that govern our relationship with Him. The law of love, the law of faith, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And perhaps there are more, but I don't believe that God has written the old covenant law of all its commandments and obligations on our hearts that we would carry them around with us internally and therefore be able to obey them perfectly. It just doesn't bear to reason at all that that's what God would do. And this is what I believe the writer's getting at in verses 15, 16, and 17, when he says that the Holy Spirit is testifying to us that this is what God is going to do. So he's going to make our relationship with him something that happens naturally and internally because there are principles that work in our heart that respond to God and produce life and is going to not remember our sin anymore. So he's putting us into a perfect position to be in this relationship with him. Therefore, it makes perfect sense of what he says in verses 19 through 25, that we can then draw close with confidence. We can enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So before the Jews would enter into the holy place by the blood of lamb and goats, but now there is great confidence that we can enter into that place of direct communion and intimate relationship with God based on 
on the blood of Jesus. And it is a new and living way, which he inaugurated through the veil, which is his flesh. So the very body of Jesus becomes the passageway. The very body of Jesus is that thing that is then torn in two so that we can enter into the presence of God. It's a beautiful truth that Jesus has fulfilled and completed every aspect of the sacrificial system. He is the great priest. He is the great sacrifice. He is the very veil himself that is torn so that we can have this free access to this holy of holy place in the presence of God. So we draw near now. Verse 22, we can draw near with a sincere heart because our conscience has been sprinkled with his blood and we don't have any evil intention in ourselves anymore because of the finished work of Jesus. We have this pure heart which we can draw near to God and we can be washed with the pure water. Now this is probably a reference to New Testament believers baptism that he would say that we are baptized with this new life. You know I can remember that when I became a Christian I came out of a lifestyle that was very very non-Christian. Now I'm not going to go into any detail but I think you can understand with me saying that exactly what that means. That in the 70s and 80s, my life was not expressing and bearing fruit according to Christian values. And when I came to Jesus, I was radically born again. I encountered personally and powerfully God forgiving me of my sins. And I felt it. I knew that I stood forgiven before him. And soon after that confession of faith in him and that experience where I received his full forgiveness in Christ Jesus, I was baptized. And for me, baptism was a very powerful experience. I felt my life being washed. I felt that I was passing through these waters. And when I came out, I was a new creation. It's as though the baptismal waters were a very significant part of my conversion experience. Now, I'm not saying that baptism has to take on this meaning, but I do believe that for the New Testament writer, They saw believers' baptism as a very significant thing, a very significant event in the life of the believer, whereby their bodies were washed with pure water, and they were brought to a place of confession and testimony before the world that says, I am now set apart for the purpose of God. That's the point of baptism. It's a confession that we are following Jesus, that we're saying before the world, I have been set apart, and this is my confession, and I am following Jesus. So we hold fast to this confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. You know, the reason why we can hold fast without wavering is not because we're so faithful. It's not because we're so strong to get it all right all the time. 
It's because the one who has made the promise to us is faithful. Because God is the one who cannot lie. God is the one. Remember earlier in the book, we saw that he is the one that by two unchangeable things, he has made a promise and he has sworn by it that he will do what he says he will do. So he is faithful to his promise. And as a result, we should consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, that we should stir each other up in this place of promise that we have with a faithful God, that we can encourage one another. And believe you me, we live in a day where we need encouragement. And I want to always remind us in our interpretive journey of this book that we need to stay close to home base. We need to stay close to what this book was all about. You remember that it was written on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem. And I believe this is a direct reference to what the writer is talking about in verse 25 as we finish our section for today. He's saying that they should not forsake their assembling together. I believe he's saying that in these perilous times, we need to continue to gather together. We need to encourage one another with coming together. You remember the original church in the book of Acts was day by day from house to house coming together, fellowshipping, praying, breaking bread, and giving themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there was this constant connecting together, and it's such an important, vital aspect of Christianity that we be properly connected with other believers. And he says in the last part of verse 25, and encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there are a lot of eschatological end-time references in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but I've said elsewhere, the primary point of interpretation of end times in reference to this book specifically is what was about to happen to Jerusalem. It's what Jesus prophesied would happen in great detail, and that is the day. That is the day of the vengeance of the Lord. That is the day when God would deal with the children of Israel in their ultimate judgment for breaking his covenant and for ultimately sacrificing his very son and crucifying the Messiah that he has so graciously given them. And this was the day that was drawing near. It's not a day that was coming 2,000 years later or even more. For the writer to say this and for it to mean that it was 2,000 years later would not make any sense at all to his readers. He's saying that this event of the day drawing near was imminent. And indeed it was. It was just a couple of short years before this event happened. And he's saying how much more we should encourage one another as we see this day drawing near. Does that mean that the verse has no application for us at all? I don't believe so. I believe there are plenty perilous things for us to face as we move through this Christian journey. And we should take this encouragement and apply it every opportunity we have to encourage one another 
together as we face difficulties, as we face challenges. But do I believe that this is a promise of an eschatological end times event yet to happen? I actually don't. I hope that you're experiencing the encouragement that I am as I go through chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. It's such a beautiful chapter where the writer just puts a bow on everything that he's been trying to say to his readers. So be strong and courageous and love Jesus more.